Well, and as you take your Bible this morning, I would encourage you to turn in them to Isaiah chapter 6. That's where we will begin our time together this morning. And indeed, we have gathered uh, to do what we have just sung, and that is to behold our God seated on his throne. And as we've been learning here in John 17, that is only possible because of the work of Jesus Christ himself. And as Ethan just prayed for us, I was so grateful for that prayer. Uh, we, We dare not remain unchanged. For once we have seen the glory of our God in Christ, there are certain expectations that fall now to us to learn and to know, to do and to obey, to love. And so that's what we must set our attention upon this morning. Well, Isaiah chapter 6, I realize that it may take you just a minute longer to find that text than it does John 17. So as you're turning there, I will just make mention of the fact that uh, we have our launch ministry, our middle school students, all at uh, their winter retreat here this weekend. So I know a number of you parents sitting out here are minus a child here today. And never fear, from what I've been told, they're doing very well and are looking forward to coming home here later on today. Uh, But before they do, I know they're wrapping up their time, most likely right now, there at camp. And so I think it would be good for us today to just be keeping them in prayer that before they come home, the Lord would do his work that he intends to do in those young little lives. And as a parent of one of those kids, I can say that I too am looking forward to them being home. Hopefully you feel the same way. All right, was that long enough for you to get to Isaiah chapter 6? Perfect. All right. Well, I want us to see this morning in Isaiah 6 something about the glory of God on display because that's what we've been talking about here in John chapter 17. And there's something rather unexpected, I think, in Isaiah 6 that we need to make sure that we understand before we get to John 17. Listen as I read the text. Now, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high And lifted up, and the train of his robe, it filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke, and I said, Woe is me, for I, Isaiah says, am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Powerful text of the picture of God. But I ask you this morning, What was it exactly that Isaiah was seeing as he gazed upon the glory of God? Now, you might not be expecting the answer that I'm going to bring to you this morning, because here is the answer. What Isaiah saw, what he cast his eyes upon there in Isaiah chapter 6, it was nothing less than the fullness of the pre-incarnate glorified person of Jesus Christ himself. Now, you might be justified in asking, where did you see anything in Isaiah 6 about that being a picture of Jesus? Well, that's a question that I'll let the Apostle John answer for us. 
because in John 12:41, John quotes from Isaiah 6, and then he explicitly states that it was Jesus whom Isaiah saw. So that's where I get that from. See, and now that we've established just what the eternal glory of Jesus Christ looked like before he came to earth, now with Isaiah's vision in your mind's eye, now let's turn over to John 17 and read our text for today, which begins in verse 5. And I think that having seen the vision of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, it gives us some renewed interest here in exactly what Jesus is saying, or at least some renewed understanding as to what Jesus is saying here in John 17, 5, when he says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, two weeks ago, we learned that the goal of God in the incarnation of Christ and and really in creating the universe is to be the manifestation of His great glory. And last week, if you'll remember by way of review, we learned that, that that goal of His glory being shown is accomplished only through the person and the work of Jesus Christ Himself. Indeed, it's, it's the person of Christ that enables our vision of the glory of God. With Him, we can know God's glory. Without Him, we can't begin to even see the first thing about God's glory. But see, there's one final and very important piece for our consideration here this morning. How, I ask you, do we actually see, lay eyes on the glory of God in Christ? I mean, look, let's be honest. I know Jesus. We worship Him as God. It's what we just did. And we believe everything that the Bible has to say about Jesus. But I've, I've never seen Him in the way that Isaiah described Him. Or... Have I? See, and that's what we want to investigate here this morning. How do we take the abstract idea of the glory of God being revealed in the face of Jesus Christ and make it something tangible that can empower my life today? How do I see the glory of Christ, you could, say, you could ask the question this way, in, in a meaningful way? See, if it's God's intention to put His glory on display in Christ, and if it's my greatest need to behold that glory so that I might have eternal life, then knowing just how to see that glory would seem to be pretty important, wouldn't it? So that's the question that we need to investigate this morning, because it's the question that Jesus answers in the text that is before us here this morning. So let's make sure that we know exactly what it is that we are looking for when we say we must behold the glory of God in Christ. Let's talk about the substance of His glory, the way that it's explained to us here in verse 5. That's where we'll begin this morning. Let me read it for us again. Jesus says, And now, Father, glorify me in Your own presence with the glory that I had with You before the world existed. Now, at this point, in case you weren't here the past couple of weeks, or in case you've understandably forgotten what we talked about the last couple of weeks, let me do some review, because it's very important to remember and to set this request from Christ in verse 5 in the context of what we've already learned. 
And if you remember, we've already learned and defined what the glory of God is. Here's the definition of the glory of God, just to make sure you remember this. The glory of God is the visible manifestation of his character. God's glory is the same thing as the demonstration of his nature. See, that's what his glory is. So when we talk about the nature of God or what he's like or his name or his glory, all of these are descriptions that are talking about the same thing. And verse 1 taught us already that it was the Father's intention to make the marvelous nature of the Son or the glory of the Son known. And similarly, in the same way, it was the, the nature, or it was the intention of the Son to make the nature or the glory of the, of the Father known. See, it was Jesus' intention to reveal the Father in the fullness of his person or his glory. And based upon that definition and what we've already learned, as we said, if you recall, to glorify someone, therefore, or to glorify God more specifically, that doesn't mean that we're, we're adding more glory to God as though he had a glory deficit before we were to glorify him. To, to glorify doesn't mean that we're, we're, we're putting something there that wasn't there before. No, to glorify simply means to reveal or to acknowledge that which is. So when we say that it's our intention to glorify God, We're not compounding his glory as though he needed more from us in order to be fully completed. No, to glorify God simply means to acknowledge the truth of who he already is in his glorious nature. That's what it means to glorify God. So now that we've reviewed that definition and that understanding of what glory is and what it means to glorify Now we understand a little bit more clearly what Jesus means here in verse 5 when he says, Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence. See, when he asks that the Father would glorify him, Jesus is not asking the Father to give him something that he doesn't already have. No, he's asking that the Father would be faithful to unveil the fullness of his nature as he already is, just as he, in verse 4, had been faithful to make known the fullness of the Father's nature. Don't you remember last week in verse 4, where Jesus says there very clearly, I glorified you on earth. I made your nature known. And now, Father, you make my nature known in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. See, the reason why Jesus is justified in asking that the Father would now glorify Him just as He had glorified the Father is because the Father and the Son share the very same glory of God. They, being one, are equal in their glory. The Son, Jesus Christ, is not less glorious than the Father. See, his humanity doesn't make him partially glorious while the Father is fully glorious. No, Jesus Christ, the Son, is not lacking in any glory, not even during his time on earth. No, in the fullness of his deity, all the glory of God belongs to him already. But when humanity was added to his nature, then... 
then that glory of God was temporarily veiled from the sight of mankind. But it was never lessened, never weakened, never taken away. See, so it's very important to understand here. What, what Jesus is asking for in verse 5 is that at the cross, the Father would be faithful to rip the veil off of Jesus' own glory and majesty just as Jesus in His life, through His life, had already uncovered the fullness of the Father's nature. See, Jesus' glory, that was a reality that the world desperately needed to see. Because until He did His work of making the glory of God known in Himself, there was no possible way for any glory to be understood at all. And we, we covered that at length last week. See, it was this revelation of God's glory that brought Him to earth in the first place. It's the ability to comprehend the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ that, friend, is your greatest need. And yet... As we've seen throughout our study of John, despite the fact that Jesus Christ put the glory of God on full display in His words and in His works and in His life, this world refused to embrace and comprehend the glory that He came to put on display, despite the brilliance of His showcasing of that glory. Just a quick rabbit trail to show you the hardness of man's heart and the need that we have to comprehend this glory. I would point your attention back to the text of John chapter 8. And I'll just summarize it here because we don't have time to read the whole chapter. I'll paraphrase it, if you will. Where Jesus very plainly says to the Jewish people there in John chapter 8, I came for one reason, and that was to show you the nature of my Father. And the Jews' sharp response is a pretty cutting one where they say to him, if you remember our study of that text, Our father is Abraham. Who's your daddy, you illegitimate demon-possessed son of a carpenter? Whoa, now that's a paraphrase, but that's essentially what they say to him. And Jesus' response is just incredible. Instead of getting down into the mud and slinging insults back at them, here's what he simply says. Truly, truly, I say to you, if I glorify myself, my glory's nothing. But it's my Father who glorifies me, Him of whom you say He is our God. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was your father, I am Yahweh. And the Jews proceed to just lose their marbles all over the temple courtyard on Jesus. Why? Not just because he claimed to predate Abraham, which in their minds was preposterous, but because he claimed to be one with God, sharing the fullness of the glory of God in himself and claiming that God the Father was now going to bring glory down to him, God the Son, blasphemy! And so they pick up stones to stone him. And from that moment on, John 8 really is the inciting moment in the action in the Gospel of John. Because from that moment on, we've turned a corner and, and they are out to kill him because of what he has claimed about the glory of God belonging to him. 
See, it was, it was that inciting moment that has now led us to the crisis point that we're at here in chapter 17 where Jesus is preparing for the cross. The reason why the Jews are intent on killing him the very next day is because he claimed to have the glory of God in their presence way back in John chapter 8. See, throughout this whole book then, Jesus, Jesus has made no secret of the fact that he shares the fullness of God's glory. What does that mean? It means he shares the fullness of the character of God. And he came to put that nature of who God is, his name, his purpose, his message, as we learned last week, on full display in the eyes of everybody in the world. And that's a very important and practical point now. See, if you want to see more of the glory of God, which you need to see, because Jesus already told us in verse 3 of this very chapter that the knowledge of the glory of God is the same thing as finding eternal life. And if you want to see more of the glory of God, then you need to look at the person of Jesus Christ. For as John chapter 1 already taught us, it was in Christ now that the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us and enabled us now to see His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. A glory that was revealing to us the nature of God. A glory brimming with grace and truth. See, if you want to know in concrete terms the nature of the glory of your God, then, friend, you need to open up your Bible and in its pages you will learn of a Savior reflective of the Father who is named Jesus. One who is just unlike any other. One who, as we've seen, is always gracious and compassionate. A God who, being perfect Himself, is slow to anger even when His perfect and holy standard has been violated. A sovereign judge who brings justice down even upon the unjust. A a Messiah who demonstrates His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, He came to die for us. A Redeemer who is Himself the very living embodiment of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. See, what are we saying here? We're saying that the only, the full embodiment of God Himself for you to know is the person of Jesus Christ. For He is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15. He is the one who is the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of His nature, Hebrews 1.3. No one has ever seen God but Jesus, who's at the Father's side. He has made Him known. John 1.18 See, that's all the truth that Jesus is pointing to when He says here, And now, my Father, glorify Me. Make known My nature in Your own presence with the glory that I had with You before the world existed. Show them now who I am. That's what he's asking of the Father here. See, friends, this glory that Jesus so eagerly wants us to see and comprehend, this is the completion of his work. This is the thing that brings us to eternal life. This glory of God that he's eager to put on display in himself, it it has burned since before time began, since before time immemorial. 
It has infinitely burned between the Father and the Son and the Spirit as His own nature echoes between themselves in the fullness of themselves. See, they know who they are in the fullness of God and His glory. But here's now the real glory of God on display that they, Father, Son, and Spirit, have seen fit to make the greatness of that glory in all its fullness known to you. How could you not be overawed and amazed by a God like that? See, we've answered already here as we've been talking, or rather as I've been talking, the first part of our question, haven't we? How do you see actually the glory of God? It's in the person of Jesus Christ. For He is the one that is the manifestation of all glory. It's why He came in the first place. And now we understand a little bit more about what that glory is. It's the perfection of God and His character. But, but how do we see that glory today? Where do we turn to actually lay eyes on the reality of this glory? Well, that's where this text is going to take just a, a shocking little bit of a turn. Because see, the answer to where you see the glory of Christ being manifested today is not, I promise you, going to be the answer that you are expecting. And here's where we go from talking about the substance of His glory, it's one with the Father, to the significance of His glory and the fact that it now resides in you. Well, let's look at that now. See, just because Jesus may have left that doesn't mean that He is gone. No, don't you remember all the promises that Jesus made through chapters 13 through 16 in this Gospel? See, we've not been left alone now as followers of Jesus Christ because the Spirit of Jesus has taken up His residence inside of those of us who believe. And so in a very real way then, the glory of Christ is being manifested and seen inside those of us who have believed in Him. And that, right there, that is the stunning truth of where this text takes us. Because as we get down into verse 9, Jesus has just finished explaining in verses 6 through 8 the nature of His work. We covered it last week. Remember, He says, I came to make known the name and nature of the Father. I came to make known the purposes of the Father. I came to make known the message of the Father. But then in verse 9, He transitions to a completely different thought and says, and so for that reason, now I am praying for them. Why would He say that? Because, look at verse 10, it's in them that I am now going to be glorified. See, you and I, here's the truth of it, were created anew by God to be vessels of His glory as the person of Jesus Christ is now formed in us reflectors of the glory of God so that the world might see through all the ages the nature of who our God is. That's what you've been called to be. That's what you've been called to do. And that's the reason why now Jesus says in verse 9, and so, so I'm praying now for them. Let that sink in for a moment. Jesus is like hours away from the cross at this point. 
And there's a lot of things that he could be praying for for himself. There's a lot of things that he could be saying, a lot of things, frankly, that he should be saying. He already said to the disciples in John 16, 12, if you recall, that there's many things that I have to say to you, but I can't say them right now. So there's a lot of things that Jesus could be praying about right now. But where do we find his attention? We find his attention praying for his followers. And from here on out, the rest of this prayer in the next 16 verses is going to be all about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, interceding on your behalf. Why would he do that? It's because the completion of his mission depends upon the glory of God now being installed in your life. You're being caught up to be a central part of God's plan. See, the, the plan of redemption is not just that now I've got a relationship to God. No, the plan of redemption now makes it possible for you and I to actually participate in God's purposes by bringing glory to His name. That is just stunning now. See, that's what we need to understand here. The way that the glory of Christ is manifested on earth today it's as Jesus Christ is formed in you, my friend. And that statement should really cause us to stop, scratch the record, and, and, and cut the track off. To, to just make us think a lot. Because it's God's good intention to manifest Christ's glory, His glory, in and through you. And that's the reason why Jesus says now, I'm not praying for the world. I'm not praying for everybody who's going to reject me now because the glory of God isn't going to be revealed through them during this time. No, how is the glory of God going to be made known to the rest of the world? It's through them. Those ones, Jesus says, whom you, Father, have given to me, for they are yours. It's in them, he says, those that follow me in faith that glory is going to be displayed. After all, he says, look, all mine are yours and yours are mine. So if you're going to be glorified by their redemption, then so will I. And that's the reason why I'm praying now. I'm praying for them. Because they are the vessels by which this glory is now intended to be manifested. Friend, I, I mean to tell you, the glory of God that was too hot for Isaiah to touch now lives inside you. And your purpose is to radiate that glory to the rest of creation. Big gulp there at that point. I mean, let's just stop and acknowledge here the fact that this would seem to be kind of a really risky strategy from where we sit. I mean, we look at this plan of God and we say, in light of our weakness, in light of my weakness, I mean, honestly, how can this be a good idea? Let's not forget the context of who Jesus is talking to here. I mean, don't you remember how the disciples are doing at this point in the narrative? Hint, hint. It's not very good. <laughs> we, we might be justified in saying at this point, hold on now a minute, Jesus. What kind of plan is this? Well, let's just divorce ourselves from the equation for a moment to get some objectivity here now. And, and let's just consider the disciples because that's the primary audience that Jesus is talking to and about. I mean, you are included here by extension, but these statements are primarily being aimed at the disciples who are there with Christ. And honestly, folks, 
As we worked our way through John chapter 13 through 16, what did we discover of these disciples? We found a bunch of really timid men, faithless men, confused men, proud men, ignorant men. And here now Jesus is saying that it's going to be in those men that his glory is going to be put on display. He's entrusting his glory to the likes of proud Peter and doubting Thomas and clueless Philip. I mean, how could something as centrally and crucially important as the glory of God being put on display be entrusted to vessels as weak, useless, and clueless as these 11 men? I mean, there's a piece of me here in the text as as you just read this that says, no, don't do this. And yet, this is the only way. Because it's as the great glory of God gets showcased through the weakness of men, you see, that it becomes clear that our salvation was to the praise of His own glory alone and never our own. See, Jesus Himself said to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12.9, Look, my grace, it's sufficient for you because it's in your weakness that my power is made known. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27 states it this way. Look, God chose what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose you, what is weak in the world, to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world to, to despise the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that, here's the reason, no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him now, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom, revelation from God of His nature, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that, as it is written, let no one who boasts boast in himself, but let him boast in the Lord. See, friend, it's in the weakness of man that the glory of God is truly made known. Because it's as God installs His glory in vessels as weak as you and me that there is no way that any of us could ever begin to take credit for our own salvation or our sanctification. The only way that Christ and His glory can be formed in me, the nature of Christ can reside in me as as God does His work. Because I never could nor would conform myself to Christ if left to myself. But the fact that I am being conformed to Christ in His nature, that His nature and His glory is now shining through my life, that is a testimony to the greatness and goodness and grace of God alone. Because I, you see, am nothing but what Scripture calls a cracked clay pot fit for common use, according to 2 Corinthians 4.7. Listen to what that text has to say about it. And trust me, this is not going to build you up too much. It says, we now have this treasure. What's that? The glory of God, the nature of Christ, held in cracked jars of clay, frail humanity. Why? To show that the surpassing power now belongs to God alone and not to us. And so therefore, we are afflicted in every way but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. 
We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. We're always carrying in the body, this body of death, Jesus, so that his life might now be manifested in our bodies. Friend, I don't know about you, but that's a truth that temporarily, momentarily threatens to just overwhelm me because on my own, it's too much for me to bear. I mean, we have spent three weeks building up the greatness of the glory of God, the majesty and the marvel of who he is and what's been made known of him to us in Christ. But now we learn that God's grand plan is to install all of that glory down inside of us and to use me, a nobody with nothing to commend him as the primary vessel whereby all that glory gets shown. How on earth am I supposed to live up to that kind of an expectation? Well, honestly, that's my question as I come down here to the end of verse 10. And it might be yours as well, which I'm really grateful that Jesus gives us a clue here now in the text to know how to answer that question. <coughs> how can we possibly live up to this? Well, it's critical to understand the way that Jesus is glorified in us. When he says there in verse 10 that I am glorified in them, what does he mean? Well, when he says here that he's glorified in us, here's what he means by that. That statement is actually a clue that helps us find the answer to how we are able to accomplish the task that's actually been put in front of us. The reason for that is because Jesus has already explained in great detail exactly how we are able to glorify God. See, if you want to know what Jesus means here in verse 10 when he says, I am going to be glorified in them, then you must turn back to the dead center of the upper room discourse. Go with me now back to John chapter 15, verse 8 specifically right in the heart, the very middle high point of everything Jesus said to his disciples in chapters 13 through 16. He makes this statement by way of explanation. You want to know how he is glorified through us? Well, he's explained it. He says in, verse 15, verse, in chapter 15, verse 8, it's by this that my Father, and by extension me, is glorified. It's as you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. See, your ability to bring glory to Christ, for his glory to reside within you, it only happens as you are a fruit-bearing disciple. And if you remember back to chapter 15 in our study of that text, the key to bearing fruit and thus glorifying God is as you, a lowly branch, are connected to Christ, the vine, the source of all life, and the way by which that connection happens is through the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. See, it's through the presence of the Spirit in your life now. That's what enables you to truly glorify God because He is the one who forms and fashions Christ in you. You know, I had somebody ask me last week after the message, you know, Pastor, why isn't the Holy Spirit mentioned here in John chapter 17? And the answer to that question is because he is the one who makes John chapter 17 possible. 
There is no way for you to glorify God or for for Christ to be formed in you so that you might bear His glory apart from the work of the Spirit. Now do you see the importance of the many times that Jesus introduced us to the person of the Holy Spirit in John 13 and 14 and 15 and 16? See, it's because He, the Spirit, is in your life. That's the way by which you are able to live up to the expectation that Jesus has that you would be fruitful and glorify Him. See, to bring all this together now, to see how it fits together, we we need to go back and connect just a little bit more tightly what we're learning here in chapter 17 about our purpose as being the, the image bearers of Christ to what Jesus already taught us in John 13 through 16. In fact, these two sections are, are very intimately connected. Let me, let me show you how. Turn back in your Bible with me to John 13, 31. We're told there that the very moment that Judas leaves the upper room, now when he had gone out, Jesus makes a statement that sounds like a carbon copy of what he says in John 17. He says, now, at this moment, is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. Now my nature will be known, and God's nature will be known in me. If God is glorified in Him, then God will also glorify Him, that's Jesus, in Himself, and He will do it at once. And then, then after that introduction, where the glory of God is identified as being the point, Jesus goes on in chapters 13 through 16 to explain that God is going to do that as he puts his spirit within you and conforms you into the image of me. See, that's the means by which God is glorified. It's as you are changed and transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. So how was was all of that going to take place? Well, Over these next three chapters, Jesus explains that the Spirit of God was going to take up residence in the lives of the disciples and He was going to conform them to be mirror images of Christ so that they might be fruitful in glorifying God. Let's just review here very quickly the context of these chapters and all the things that Jesus has already taught us the Spirit of God would do so that we might bring glory to Christ. Well, I'm going to go fast now, so keep up with me. Chapter 14, verse 7, we're told the Spirit would show them the reality of both the Father and the Son. It's the the Spirit who opens your eyes to be able to see God. Chapter 14, verse 12, it was the Spirit who would enable the disciples to do greater works in bringing others to faith than even Jesus Christ himself would do. On your own, you've got no ability to talk anybody into salvation, but with the Spirit, he is the one who does the work through you. John chapter 14, verse 16, the Spirit was going to be with them forever. He was going to dwell within them, making permanent the connection between you and God. Chapter 14, verse 23, the Spirit was the one who would bring the Father and the Son to the believers so that all three of them would dwell in you forever. Chapter 14, verse 26, the Spirit was the one who would teach the disciples everything that they needed to know of Christ and bring to their remembrance everything that Christ had said. Chapter 15, verse 26, you can skip ahead to that chapter. It was the Spirit who was going to bear witness to the disciples of Christ, which would then enable them to bear witness in return themselves. 
Chapter 16, verse 1, I told you we were going to go fast. It was going to be the Spirit who would sustain them through the fiercest kinds of persecution. Chapter 16, verse 7, the Spirit in their life was going to be so powerful that it was to their advantage that Jesus go away so that the Spirit could come. Chapter 16, verse 9, the Spirit would bring the power of conviction to bear upon those who heard the disciples. Chapter 16, verse 13, the Spirit would guide them into all the truth and speak to them everything about Christ from Christ. And then, finally, and perhaps most significantly, in John chapter 16, verse 14, here is what Jesus says the Spirit will do in the lives of those who follow Him. And this one is very critical. The Spirit is the one who will glorify the Son in your eyes by taking the truth of the Son and making it known to you now. See, when Jesus started the conversation back in chapter 13, He made it very clear that the Father's glory would be manifested through the life of the believer. When Jesus finishes the conversation with the prayer that we're talking about here in chapter 17, He makes it very clear that He would be glorified in the life and through the life of the believer. And in those three or four chapters in between, I ask you now, what is the X factor that enables you to actually fulfill that expectation that's stated at beginning and end? It is the presence of the Spirit of Christ now dwelling within you. He is the one who convicts who illumines, who empowers, who helps, who reminds, who indwells, who brings the truth to bear upon your life. He is the one who glorifies Christ and makes Him knowable to you so that in Him you might know the trueness of the Father. And how does He do that? How does He make the glory of God known to you? How does He illuminate the nature of Jesus Christ? He does it as He conforms everything in your life to look like that of Jesus Christ. And the result of His work now in you and in me is that you and I, we now, are meant to be living, breathing, walking monuments to the grace of God, to the glory of God that now lives within us. And this is the point of this text. We were created to be bearers of the image of the glory of God And the only way by which we can do that is as the Spirit of God forms the Son of God who is the image of God in your life. See, we glorify God. We fulfill His purpose for us. Not only as we look to Christ, but as we begin to look like Christ. So, as we think through all this, let's pull these pieces together now in a way that can be deployed helpfully in our lives. See, God's greatest purpose, it's that His glory would be known. He has manifested that glory through Christ. And now, my friend, He has granted you the privilege of not only knowing that glory for yourself, but showing that glory to everyone else as Christ is formed in you. What does that mean? It means that now today, your conformity to Christ, your likeness to Him, the one who is Himself the image of the glory of God, 
That is the urgent, unique privilege that drives your Christian life. Why? Because you've been granted the privilege of reflecting the glory of God Himself in yourself. You now are a bearer of the image of Christ, and, and so there is no greater honor or privilege duty than, than to make His glory known to the universe and through the ages. And so in light of that, here's my challenge to you. No, no, it's, it's the challenge of this text to you. It's that you would devote yourself to walking worthy of this great calling that has now been placed upon your life that you would consider this a most precious privilege to, to fully embrace and pursue now the transformative work of the Spirit of God within you who is, who is making you to be and know and reflect the glory of who Jesus Christ is. I want you to listen as I close with the words of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, because this is a text that recaps the privilege and the process that you and I are now experiencing here today. See, we all, with unveiled face, behold the glory of the Lord. And so now, we're being transformed into the same image of Jesus. From one degree of glory, that who we once were, to another, that who He is. And that work comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. I ask you this morning, are you intent upon beholding the glory of God and the face of Jesus Christ? And is it your purpose through the power of the Spirit of God to reflect that glory in and through your own life? See, now that we've really begun to wrap our arms around the substance of what that glory is and the significance of what it means for it to live within us. Now, next week and the week after, we can begin digging into just how we can go about reflecting that glory, the glory of Christ in and through our lives according to the explanation of Jesus himself in these coming verses. But let's close in a word of prayer here together this morning. Our Father God, we do thank You for the truth of Your Word that shows us the person of Jesus Christ. We have been given everything that we need for life and godliness because we've been given a relationship to Him. And so now that we behold the glory of who You are in Him, may we seek to be like Him. May we, through the power of Your Spirit, put to death our flesh, our sin, ourselves. May we think as Christ thinks. May we talk as He talks. May our desires manifest His desires. And may we walk truly in a way that is worthy of His glory that He came to reveal to us. Lord, thank You for opening our eyes and showing us the glory of Jesus Christ. Thank You for listening to His prayer that He may be glorified in our sight. For indeed, He has been. And for this, we are most grateful. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, do stand together with me. And we'll close our time together by reading from Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think, according to the power that's at work within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, 
throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Go in grace today.